Hey everyone, welcome to the pod today. This is Paul. A couple of weeks ago, I sat down with Dr. Mary Ellen Doherty. She's a nursing professor here at WestCon. And I talked to her about a couple of books she has written about nursing and nurses in war. That was part of our observances for Veterans Day where we uh, had student veterans and some from the community come on campus to talk about uh, their experiences and uh, we celebrated them. Uh, We're going to also talk to Barbara Viegas today about campus events that are coming up in the next week or two. But first, let's talk with Mary Ellen Doherty. Dr. Doherty is a practicing RN and also a midwife. She teaches full-time at WestCon and has spent much of the past several years researching and writing two books, Nurses at War and Nurses After War, with her co-author, who is also her twin sister, Elizabeth Scannell Desch. And uh, Dr. Doherty, over the summer, you were in Ireland to talk about your latest book, Nurses After War, isn't that right? Yes, we were in Dublin at um, the 28th Research Congress of Sigma Theta Tau, the International Honor Society of Nursing. Hmm. And how did that go? It went very well. Um, It's a wonderful organization, and they do a wonderful international conference every summer. Um, For example, uh, next year it's going to be in Melbourne, Australia. Hmm. I don't think I'll be going, but anyway. um, I've presented research there in the past when it's been in Vienna, Austria, and when it was in Dublin another time. And then I've also presented in Kolding, Denmark, and um, in London. And the audience, I assume, is nurses, mostly nurses. Yeah, most of the organizations that I speak with um, are nursing organizations. However, I do a lot of pro bono stuff, like Mm -hmm. with women's club, men's club, alumni associations, Mm -hmm. um, really anybody that's interested. When you're talking to nurses, do many of them have experience, uh, the military experience that you've been writing about? Um, No, not necessarily. I mean, you know, obviously a small portion, um, you know, has been in the military, but many of them are involved in humanitarian efforts. And I mean, nursing itself is the type of profession that lends itself to um, doing a vast um, number of things to help people. Mm-hmm. So even if they're not military nurses, I would say that many nurses are engaged in you know, disaster relief, Red Cross, or volunteering in their community, whether it be at a homeless clinic or, or something else. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about what motivated you and your co-author to research and write these books. Uh, you're both nurses. You both have PhDs. Uh, your uh, sister is a colonel or was a colonel in the, um, I forget which Air branch Force. it was. Air, Air Force. Force. Uh, so is that how part of your uh, connection there to this nurses in war uh, was through your sister's experience? Well, part of it was um, our family was always um, close to the military in some way. Um, I had an uncle that I never knew that was uh, killed on the Arizona in Pearl Harbor. And my father, our father, was um, a pilot in World War II and served in the Pacific. 
Um, my father-in-law was on a Navy ship that was torpedoed um, during World War II in the Pacific. Um, and I'm trying, and my new son-in-law is a captain who served on the front lines in Afghanistan, before, fortunately before he met my daughter, mm. so that she didn't have to deal with having a, a loved one, you know, in the, in the midst of war. So, you know, I would say, you know, our family had great respect for the military. And um, so, you know, that was our upbringing. And um, my sister and I both wanted to volunteer at the tail end of Vietnam, but we were told we were too young. Um, I mean, I remember in college meeting with the chief nurse at West Point Hospital, and she basically said, you know, no one from, no one of your vintage are we sending. So um, we both went to work at a VA hospital after graduating from college, and um, then I moved to the West Coast, and my sister eventually did join the Air Force. Um, maybe if I had another lifetime, I would have done the same thing, except it was pretty clear in my mind that I wanted to be a nurse midwife. And I was a, f a little bit afraid that with um, signing on with Uncle Sam, I might not get to do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it. So um, yeah. th that's why I didn't do it. But maybe in another lifetime, I would, mm -hmm. I would do that. And uh, so you had this background, and was it difficult to find the uh, nurses who you interviewed for your books, your first book? Um, I won't say that it was difficult, but you, you really had to think about um, how to go about doing that and also dealing with um, the, the different branches of the military and not violating any rules and regs in uh, trying to recruit people. So what we did for the first book, um, I think my sister who, she was out of the military, but she had put in 25 years, so she knew a lot of people. And she contacted two people at different headquarters that were in key positions, and they said that they would put out an announcement, like in an email. Um, and neither of them had been in the wars, but they knew people that had, and they thought that would be a good way uh, to put our contact information out there so that people could contact us. You never want to chase down people. You want them to come forward. And also, um, I was a professor at that time at University of Massachusetts Lowell, and it just happened to be that one of my colleagues who um, was a clinical instructor was a retired army nurse. Now she had not served in the wars either, but she knew many people that did. And she put me in touch with people. And were people, uh, nurses, willing to talk? Did you find, how, what was the general reaction? People wanted to talk. The ones that contacted us obviously either wanted to talk or wanted to find out a little bit more about the study before they talked. The other thing that, that motivated me I had a lot of students deployed right out of my classes at UMass Lowell. Um, I mean, this was, uh, let's see, I came here to uh, Westcon in 2008. So I was probably at UMass Lowell like in 2003, four, five, six, you know, when, especially when Iraq was, was really, um, you know, uh, 
going through the surge in Fallujah and everything else. And so uh, even though the students weren't RNs yet, I had many of them that were in guard units. And so they fulfilled the role of medic. Mm. And then what we did was we kept a place in the program for them so that when they came back from their service commitment, they could resume their nursing studies. Um, so, I mean, they were plucked right out of my class. Sometimes they only um, had like maybe a week's notice. Um, and so that got me very interested in it because a lot of the, a lot of the time I would hear from the students when they were overseas. Um, I also had a few students who uh, the military was footing the bill for their education. So they would graduate as RNs with a bachelor's degree, and literally their first nursing job, brand new spanking nurse, would be um, either in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. I mean, the military would send them for some training, like to, uh, I don't know if it's Fort McCoy or Camp McCoy, Wisconsin, but their real job would be in a um, hospital in a war zone. So you saw these um, mostly young women just before they uh, left for war. Yeah, and they would, they would often keep in touch with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them still keep in touch with me. Mm -hmm. That's nice. One of the things when I read these books is um, you conducted real uh, research. It's, um, um, what's the term? Uh, um, not verified, but... Uh, well, it's rigorous. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Um, you know, you go through the trustworthiness criteria of Lincoln and Guba um, that for qualitative research, it's a resource from 1985. And, it, you know, it looks at, um, you know, the trustworthiness, the credibility, the authenticity, the dependability, all those things that qualitative research needs to address. Mm -hmm. And when it addresses those, it creates a more rigorous study. Mm-hmm. So you did all the professional work that you need to do to, as a researcher and a scholar to do this work. But it also, when you wrote the book, you, uh, very, um, you were very good at um, letting the nurses speak and their personalities come through and the fears and the successes and the joy come through. It was very, um, it's like you're talking to these people. Yes. And the first book, Nurses in War, Voices from Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the nurses could tell us anything. We, we uh, threw out a couple very open-ended questions, tell us about your experience, and then they would go on and on, and we would clarify things and ask them more questions. Um, and then at the end, we would always ask them, is there anything else you would like to tell me? Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you think is significant? And you have to remember, too, that the first book is the culmination of three studies. The first study was that tell us anything you want to tell us type study. And that led to a second study, which was on women's health and hygiene issues while deployed. And the reason we did that was because so many of the people, and, and the majority were women, but there were a few men in the first study, um, were to complain and to tell us about the terrible living conditions um, that many of them had to endure. And you have to remember that the infrastructure wasn't there during the early years of the war. So things were very, very primitive. Supplies um, you know, were often um, 
it was difficult to get them and people didn't have a lot of choices about you know food or laundry detergent or even where you were going to sleep i mean some of them were in a tent with 75 of your best friends and you know other people were in d different structures depending on whether you were in iraq or afghanistan and so of course um, you know, the female persona was going to um, complain about the shower. And pe people talked about showers being timed. Hmm. You couldn't stay in there, you know, more than about three minutes. And also, many times you didn't have hot water. That wouldn't be good. You know, so the health and hygiene study w was talking about, um, you know, the austere conditions and um, you know, sometimes not being able to um, to get GYN care if they needed it, or um, just the the germs and the filth and the sand and the dirt that they came in contact with. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of them said we just could not keep anything clean. Um, so that was the second study. And so it really emanated from the first study and what people told us. Mm -hmm. The other thing for the third study in that first book was about parental separation. Because so many of the nurses, male and female, told us that the hardest thing was being separated from their children. And that they were almost more afraid of what was going on at home or more worried about what was going on at home than being shot at themselves or you know, being ambushed. Um, they were afraid that the young children wouldn't remember them. They were wondering who was gonna help with homework, um, driving to activities. Uh, with older children, they were worried about alcohol and drugs, getting a driver's license, going away to college for the first time when mom or dad wasn't around. So, so that was the third study, and those three studies, um, you know, formed the first book. Mm -hmm. I just, it, it's hard to imagine how difficult that would be, being away from your family, and kids especially for that uh, long, because they don't really have a say in it, right? They didn't, uh, they aren't the spouse. They uh, just are thrust into this. And, and they don't understand many, you know, much of the time. Mm -hmm. mm. And um, traditionally, men were soldiers and uh, military, members of the military for a long time, and they went through this. But I think with more women in the, in military, in the military and in situations like this, it's... Um, more people are talking about it. The women are talking about it more, right, than the um, fathers did. Um, yes, but but the, the fathers talked about missing missing their kids mm -hmm. too. I mean, they didn't have the health and as many health and hygiene issues. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, the the other reason we we um, a big reason why we did this research was we wanted to give nurses a voice. Because when you pick up the newspaper or turn on the news, you would hear about the soldiers, sailors, marines, um, guard units, whatever. And, and that's wonderful. We want to hear about them. But nurses were rarely mentioned. You never hear about yeah, them. Yeah, never. And, um, you know, you didn't see pictures in the newspaper. You didn't see a thank you. Um, 
and you'd see people, injured people coming back, and you knew that the effort of the nurses had an impact on their health, but yet nobody mentioned it. It was almost like nurses were the invisible warriors. Mm -hmm. And they also were in harm's way. Right. It was uh, one of the uh, things I brought away from reading the book the first time, the first book was uh, that they were right there on the front lines in many, many times being shot at and um, seeing all the, those horrors of war that uh, I had thought of only the, the, uh, the, um, the Marines would see because they're out there with their rifles fighting against face to face with the enemy. But uh, uh, these nurses saw the same thing and they saw the aftermath of it, too, and had to deal with them. Yes. And and, you know, the aftermath, some of their stories like um, people with traumatic amputations. And I remember one story um, where uh, three soldiers were, I think, in a Humvee, and um, they went over an IED, um, and all three men lost both legs. Mm. And uh, one young man um, just went berserk in the emergency room when he didn't realize that he didn't have legs anymore. And it took them, the nurse said, it took them hours to calm him down, get him medicated. And when they finally did, she took a break and went out the back door of the hospital and threw up. Mm. She, was so, she was sick from seeing um, what happened to him and also um, his reaction to what happened. And it, they're, they're just things that you can't erase from your memory. One of the uh, nurses talked about, I think it was Afghanistan, uh, working with families, or families would bring in their children, and some that had drunk, um, I don't know. Kerosene. Kerosene, right. Yeah. Yes. And watching the kids die. Yep. Um, I think that was Afghanistan, too. I'm not, you know, it's with the two books and with, with four studies milling around in, in my head. Um, yes. Uh, and also children uh, were burned. They got too close to, uh, you know, a fire, and it was very hot. A lot of them would go up on the roofs of their dwellings at night to, to, to try to get cooler, and the kids weren't as supervised as they should have been, and, and they fell off the roof. That was another thing. Mm -hmm. So almost all of the nurses said that they were very um, surprised by the number of pediatric cases that they took care of that when they were going over there, they kind of thought, well, we're probably going to take care of mostly soldiers or coalition troops, maybe some contractors. Um, but the number of nationals, elderly people, women and children, it was more than they bargained for. Mm -hmm. And they talked about the, wishing they had more training too, right? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can always have have more um, and and sometimes they felt that maybe they weren't as psychologically prepared for this as they thought they were mm -hmm. I mean are you ever I know, I, is there I, ever enough how can you prepare you know, for that yeah. um, so but you know most of them said that they'd go back in a heartbeat 
because they felt that need. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think nursing is different than many other professions. I think 99.9% of us go into this because we want to help people. It's certainly not to get rich, um, but you really want to make a difference. You want to make the world a better place for the generations that are going to come after us. And so, I mean, you know, I think from, well, I can only speak for myself. I think of nursing as really a vocation. And as a nurse midwife, I really felt a calling to take care of mothers and babies. I mean, I love many aspects of nursing, but, um, you know, in my heart, that's that's really where I am. And probably second to that would be um, being a military nurse, mm -hmm. um, and you know, in in a disaster or war or whatever, you know, you want to help the sickest of the sick. You want to help the person that that maybe has no one else. Right. You know, I've in in my um, in my career, I've delivered over two thousand babies, and I've delivered a lot of teenagers, mm. and the youngest being thirteen, if you can believe that. Mm. And um, I always felt like. They're the ones that, that, that need the kindness, that need the person there with them, someone to give them support. And I mean, I think you could say the same thing of the people hurt in war, mm -hmm. whether they be elderly or um, women and children or soldiers. Um, it's sure. like you're there at that moment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't even, you almost don't even think about it. I mean, it's funny, my sister and I took care of two emergencies on a JetBlue flight a few years ago, and we were out of our seats so fast, we didn't even, I mean, we laugh about it now, we didn't even think about it. And I, I think that's just most nurses. Mm -hmm. I have seen that before, and uh, uh, I'm always surprised at how, you're right, it's like without thinking, and I'm standing there staring or something, <laughs> not knowing what to do or what happened. It's interesting. Uh, and the uh, that, I think, brings us to the second book, The uh, um, Lives of Nurses When They Come Home, some of them as you said, would go back in a heartbeat because uh, they, in part, they felt that they were part of something bigger than themselves, and they appreciated that. Uh, but there's a lot of PTSD yes. and um, the, the bad effects of war, too. Yes, and, um, you know, I talked about nurses being possibly invisible warriors. Well, it seemed that many people made the assumption that the nurses wouldn't be affected with post-traumatic stress disorder. And actually now they're just calling it post-traumatic stress. Mm. I think they're trying to take the word disorder out because it's, it's, a, uh, it's kind of a abnormal, how can I say it? Um, Saying it's really this, a normal phenomenon right. if you went through that experience. Yep. I mean, it's it's kind of odd to have someone not touched in some way because the memories of war are etched in your mind forever. I mean, they know the smell of war. They know the feel of war. They know the sights of war. You know, all of that. It's really, you know, touched their inner core of being. So how can they not have some degree of post-traumatic stress? Mm -hmm. I can't imagine coming back from that without 
some without stress and um, anxiety and all the other things. Yeah, I mean, I've seen it. And my my son-in-law, um, the captain, he, he just left the Pentagon. And um, they just arrived yesterday in their next duty station at Monterey, California, the language school. Um, he's going to be a foreign affairs officer, and he's going to be learning Russian. And my daughter is so proficient in French and Italian that they're trying to make a place in the class for her to learn Russian because she would really be an advantage to him, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, so they're in Monterey, California. And Jake is the most well-adjusted guy, except I still notice that loud noises and large crowds still bother him. I mean, he can deal with it, but you just see that um, you know, that posture and the way he's looking around and kind of sizing up the crowd and all of that. And I know that that is because of his service in Afghanistan. Sure. Um, and, you know, uh, I've asked him what was the worst thing he ever saw, and it was exactly what I thought it would be. And he said, um, injured, maimed, or dead children. Mm. He, he said, and, and I, I really kind of knew what he would say, um, but, you know, just that helpless feeling. And these nurses I interviewed saw that often. Yeah, and the children were caught in the chaos of war. I mean, they were innocent. You know, they didn't have political views most of the time. They weren't old enough, you know, and um, it was just kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. For somebody who goes into a job to help people it must be um, just very difficult yeah and that's that's what many of them found when they came back to the United States and I have a couple things I I wrote down from book number two and these were the themes and I, I want to mention these because this kind of addresses the reintegration experience. And the second book is Nurses After War, The Reintegration Experience of Nurses Returning from Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, the first theme was homecoming, a mixed reception. People thought homecoming was going to be wonderful. For some people it was, but for other people it wasn't. Um, Sometimes their family expected them to jump right in with and be the same person that they were before they left, and this was not the case. The families Um, didn't know either, right? They had no training at it. And there's more and more being done to prepare families now and to prepare the returning people. Um, But in the earlier years of the war, Mm -hmm. um, things weren't, weren't in place. Uh, or not to the degree that they are now. Um, the second theme was renegotiating roles, a family affair. And this is when sometimes mom and dad didn't know uh, what the returning person wanted to do. And that maybe assumptions were made that, oh, she wants to just jump right in and drive the carpool and make dinner and go to the PTA meeting and whatever. And, and some of the, the female nurses said, I can't deal with that yet. You know, I'm not ready for that. You know, g- give me at least a week or two. Right. Um, but I think that the spouse just assumed that that would be an escape, you know, from mm-hmm. war. Right. But 
they were overwhelmed. Um, another theme was painful memories of wartime deployment, and I think I talked about that um, uh, earlier in our conversation, but um, some of the memories ended up being, you know, nightmares, recurrent nightmares, recurrent flashbacks. Um, I remember one woman, and she was actually from Connecticut, and I was sitting at her kitchen table, and she was telling me that when she first came back, she said to her husband, we need to go out and we need to buy a weapon. And he, he kind of like said, what? You know, where are you coming from? This was not the wife that he knew. And she said, yeah, we need to go buy a gun. And he was like, no, no, we're not going to have a gun in the house, whatever. And um, they ended up getting a Louisville slugger bat. And they kept it under their bed. And she said, when she thought about it, the reason she wanted a weapon, she felt like she carried a weapon for seven months, and she didn't go anywhere without it. It went in the ladies' room with her. It went to bed with her, you know, whatever. And that she got so used to it, and, and it, it was like a safety net or safety valve for her, that she wanted something like that in her house in Connecticut. Hmm. And, you know, she laughs about it now, but she said she's, they still keep the bat under the bed. <laughs> um, sorting it out, getting help, okay? Um, some people knew when they were deployed that as soon as they got back, they wanted to talk to somebody in behavioral health. Um, they knew that, that things were changing for them. Maybe they were more serious. Uh, maybe they um, weren't laughing as much. Uh, they, they were just pessimistic, maybe withdrawn, whatever, and they wanted to talk to somebody. Um, other people, it took a while after they got back. I think that maybe they wanted to see how things went. Maybe they were afraid that it would affect their health record if they, you know, were um, seeing a psychologist or a psychiatrist, because um, there's somewhat of a stigma attached. Mm -hmm. You mean in the military? In the military. Um, although this has gotten much less, because I think the military has realized that people need to talk to people, and it's you're going to be a better worker if you have someone to talk to and unload some of this with. Um, so I think the military has come a long way. But in the beginning, I, I know from talking to my sister, there, there is a stigma, like if something goes into your health record. It could, it could um, affect a promotion yeah. or a type of job that you wanted to do or security clearance. Um, you know, so some people waited a while to see how things fell into place and then if they wanted to seek counseling. Some of the nurses told us that they even went outside of the military and instead of getting, um, you know, going to the military hospital or whatever, they, they paid out of their own pocket to have a therapist to talk to because they, it wouldn't go on their record in the military and yet they were still getting help. Mm. So um, several nurses talked about needing a clinical change of scenery. They had had, a, they had had too much trauma while they were over there. And even if they had been a trauma ICU or a trauma ER nurse before they went, some of them said that, um, you know, they had seen their quota. 
They, they were burned out mm-hmm. on trauma. And maybe they wanted to work in a nursing home for a while. Maybe they wanted to work in pediatrics, maybe the recovery room, um, maybe maternity, but that they needed to get away from trauma. And then there's always that person, the adrenaline junkie that wants to stay with trauma. Hmm. So, you know, there were differences, but I think more of them wanted a different clinical assignment for a while. Did some of them, or did anybody uh, express any anger at those of us who stayed behind and haven't gone and volunteered uh, for the uh, for service like that and put ourselves in harm's way you know, as they did and put ourselves in position to see all that? Um, probably a little bit. I think it was more if somebody was, um, you know, making big proclamations about the war or. Uh, disagreeing with the policy or whatever and and yet they were home here you know not not really doing anything or if people seem to not appreciate their military service most of the people really appreciated being recognized and thanked for their service um some of the disappointments came with things like they arrive on a plane back in the united states and they're not going to get to their home of record for maybe a day or two. And there was no one to greet them when they land on U.S. soil. And, um, like, why not the nearest base send a group of people to meet them? Um, why not, uh, you know, the USO or a veteran group or something? They wanted to be recognized in some way, in some small way, mm-hmm. maybe coffee and donuts. Um, I remember a nurse saying that the hardest thing was when they landed and there was no one to meet them and then there was no transportation or transportation was an issue. Maybe a bus took them to the parking lot or whatever, but they had to like rent a vehicle to get to where they were supposed to like out process. That doesn't seem right. No. You know, I mean, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever, I mean... You know, you you kind of feel like your work is thankless, mm-hmm. um, and there was there were disappointments. So I I won't say there was like out and out anger, but but things things just didn't make sense um, sometimes, mm-hmm. and and especially if their unit or another um, military unit nearby knew those folks were coming back, like couldn't they get something together? Right. Um, Especially after you put your life on the line for yeah. the country. I assume that you use this uh, research and your experiences in the classroom, too. Do you talk to your students about it? I do as, um, as much as I can. I mean, I have to be honest and say um, sometimes the courses that I'm teaching are so cram-packed with um, like physical assessment. I mean, like yesterday, I had to get through a whole section on pain, all different kinds of pain, and then I had to go, that was chapter 10, and then I had to go to chapter 11 and do all nutrition, you know, all kinds of issues with nutrition. And I mean, you know, when you only have the students from for like an hour and 15 minutes, there's only so much time. What I try to do is the first class, when I'm introducing myself to the class, I kind of tell them a little bit about in myself, um, that I'm a nurse midwife, 
um, that I love to do research and that I've been doing research on um, nurses in the military, my last couple projects, and um, about the wars and everything. Um, so I do, I do like to mention that because I feel like it's part of me. Um, so I, I kind of tell them the things that I think are important. And then I also want them to know that like, I have a lot of clinical experience so that they don't wonder who's this person up there um, lecturing me. Mm -hmm. But none of us can be good at everything. I mean, you can't, you know, you can never um, be an expert in every area of sure. nursing. I mean, it's, it's impossible. No, it is impossible. And who reads your books? Who do you see as, uh, imagine as the audience for your book and the people you talk to have read it? Well, of course, I think everybody should read them, mm. but um, probably the biggest um, sale are military nurses. I mean, we spoke at the Society of Air Force Nurses at their conference in Portland, Maine. I think it was, I don't know, about three, maybe four years ago, and every book we brought with us was sold out and then there was a list. And I never remember selling so many books in one day. It's, it's, it's usually not like that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I recommend them. No, how can I say that? I don't recommend them. I mention them in my courses. I'm not supposed to recommend them mm -hmm. because if students buy them, whether they be undergraduate, master's, or doctorate, and I teach on all three levels, um, supposedly, if I'm pushing my book, the school is supposed to get some of the profits. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this. Mm -hmm. Don't, uh, yeah. Well, officially, you haven't been uh, recommending your book, so the school doesn't get anything. Right. I mean, but especially for my doctorate students that are going to be doing research studies, right. I like to mention the books because it's showing them how people can take research and put it into a book. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I had, I don't really think I had anybody showing me that. I think, you know, we kind of evolved it on our own. Um, but I think it can be very helpful for especially masters and doctorate students. Um, and I even mentioned to the undergraduates because they have to take a nursing research course that if you're looking for an article, I mean, the three studies that were in the first book. One was published in the Journal of Nursing Scholarship, which is Sigma Theta Tau's journal. Uh, another one was published in the Journal of Midwifery and Women's Health. And the third one was published in MCN, the American Journal of Maternal Child Nursing. So when students are looking for research articles, I think it might have a little more meaning if, it's, if one of their faculty wrote it. Absolutely. But the other thing is, most research articles are so dry. They're so tough to read. They don't have any, <clears throat> excuse me, humanity in them, uh, which is what you've achieved here. It's very significant, I think. Thank you, Paul. Well, that's qualitative research. Mm. And qualitative research, there's quantitative and there's qualitative. And then there's mixed methods and other stuff, too. But th th those are the two main camps in research. And um, I've always gravitated toward qualitative. I mean, I think either your brain is, you know, you either number crunch or you're interested in experiences. And I've always been one to be interested in experiences. Like, I don't want to know that 20 nurses did this, that, and the other thing. I want to know what was it like for the 20 nurses? 
you know, the number doesn't mean that much to me. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's just the way my brain is wired. I mean, I know other professors that are wonderful with quantitative research, but um, I guess it's good that I'm teaching the qualitative course because um, <laughs> they, they couldn't pay me enough to teach the quantitative course. But anyway. That must be how my brain is wired too because uh, <laughs> you, you gave these nurses a voice and it was uh, very effective. And I'm sure they appreciate it too. Yeah, I think as a journalist, I think you're definitely a qualitative person. Mm. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> and is your book available? Your books available on Amazon and yes. places like that. Yes, it's available on, on both of them on Amazon, and also the publisher is Springer, mm-hmm. and Springer's probably the leading publisher of uh, nursing textbooks. So um, you know, Springer.com. And that's located in New York City, but probably more. Um, it's probably easier for, for many people because Amazon's so big, and the, people use Amazon all the time. So you've written two successful books. So you're rich now, right? Um, when I split the profits, um, the royalty check, with my sister. I mean, we each get our own royalty check. It has never been more than about each of us eight hundred between $800 and $900 a year. Mm-hmm. So you keep your day job. That's good for us. I'm glad that you are. But maybe your third book, are you working on a third book? No, I think this is it. Um, I think that what we're looking at now is the flip side of the coin. We wanna do a research study on um, post-traumatic growth. Um, and there's some work out there by, by several people in psychology and some in nursing on post-traumatic growth. And it, it doesn't have to be a war environment. You know, it could be disaster. It could even be emotional relationships. I mean, it could even be people surviving divorce or people surviving um, catastrophic events. I mean, um, and... You know, it's it's kind of looped in there with resiliency, but I think we're going to have to tease it out what we're, you know, actually mm-hmm. going to uh, to look for. Mm-hmm. And we're just we're just talking about that. We're, we haven't done anything yet. I've been collecting some literature because c- you want to do a good literature review. Um, but you know, we would apply it to this population. I mean, but you could you could do it on lots of populations. Right. But we probably would be doing it on um, military nurses, you know, to see if people feel that any growth came out of this. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them already said that their nursing skills are better than they ever were. Um, you know, that's one thing. Um, but they also feel that they're better at advising other nurses who are going to deploy. That's and the military does use a lot of nurses who have already deployed. And some of these nurses deployed numerous times. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like they just went once. Um, maybe, maybe someone only went once. But, um, you know, I have a student in my class. Um, I mean, he's studying to be a nurse, and he told me he already did uh, – he was in Afghanistan and he was in Iraq. As a medic? Or yes. A, a, no, no, actually, he was military police. Hmm. But he, he's interested in healthcare, so, you know, he's doing, and he's an EMT, hmm. so he's doing the, um, the nursing route. That's great. Yep. That's the kind of students we, uh, many of the students we have here, right? A lot of diversity. Yes, which is, which is wonderful. Yep. 
Um, I'm trying to think if, if, if I want to mention anything else about, um, oh, I should mention this. Um, the nurses also cared for the enemy. Mm. And um, that was hard. Mm -hmm. That was very hard because sometimes in one bed they would have um, an insurgent and maybe in the next bed they had the guy that he got in the fight with and they're having to provide care for both of them. Um, and some of the nurses served in, uh, in the prison hospitals, like uh, Abu Ghraib and um, Camp Buka, Camp Crocker. Um, and that was, a, that was a hard assignment. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Nurses probably have been doing that in the military for a long time, right? Or in the U.S. military, anyway. Probably, but, but yet, um, you know, with the language barrier mm. and with the customs and, you know, and everything else, um, yeah. you know, it was, it was a tough assignment. Mm. Plus, some of them would want to kill you. Yes. So, so, there, the was, nurse, right? so there was fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think what other things. The other thing was support, um, support versus lack of support. And this happened with family and friends. I mean, most people were supportive, but um, not everyone. Um, you know, maybe personal support, but why? Why did you go over there? Mm. Why did you volunteer? Why did you, you know? Um, and the same thing with uh, their military unit or their civilian job. Um, sometimes there was some pushback when they came back. Um, you know, whether it be people not asking them, mm. how are you doing? I remember one nurse went on and on and on about, she kept waiting months after she got back, and here she's in a military hospital, mm. and no one ever said, like, how are you doing? You know, do you need anything? You know, and she just kept waiting, and she said she fell through the cracks, never got a post-deployment physical, like, was never notified, and she just, she, again, felt invisible, and she said, sometimes I think this happens because people take us for granted, you know, they, they, they realize we're nurses and their expectations are that we're just going to take care of ourselves, but we're going to take care of everybody. And she, she just wanted someone to ask about her. It's very interesting. I mean, people don't know what to say a lot of times, right? And you're, and what you just said about expecting nurses to take care of themselves, I'm sure that's true. But we're all people. Yep. And we still like someone to once in a while ask about us. Right. Mm. You know, we're, it's, it's, we're, we're still human. You know, even if you've seen a whole lot of trauma, that doesn't mean it doesn't bother you. Right. Hmm. It's very interesting. Hopefully some of the people who listen to this will be uh, able to use that information. I hope so. Give their nurse a pat on the back. Because they're probably all around us, right? In all the hospitals and all the, um, I don't know, agencies where uh, nurses work. Some of them have been to war. Yes. Hmm. Yes. I remember one of them that was in our study. I think it was the second, uh, the, I think it was in the second book. Um, she had been in war 
and then she happened to be working in the ER at Boston Medical when the bomb went off at the marathon. Hmm. And she was like, I can't believe this is, you know, happening yeah. here. Here again, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm. In some ways, you'd think she'd be better uh, able to deal with that kind of trauma, but you're right, it's totally unexpected, right? Unexpected, and, and she probably hadn't got, gotten over mm-hmm. the feelings and thoughts of the deployment. Mm-hmm. And you think you're in kind of a safe place, and then something happens. Right. You should be in a safe place there. Well, if, if you have trauma in Boston, Boston Medical's where you want to be. Hmm. All right. Is there anything else that I should have asked you before uh, we wrap up here? Um, no, I just want to say that uh, my co-author, um, Elizabeth Scannell Desch, my twin sister, she's actually my evil twin, but um, <laughs> I just want to say that, that Beth and I were, are so appreciative of the nurses um, that shared their lives with us. Um, we have great respect for the military and the military nurse corps and nurses in general. And um, we, we were so grateful that they poured out their hearts to us and, you know, told us uh, some of their innermost thoughts and what was bothering them. And, and, and most of them really um, took away some positives from the experience. I think they learned a lot about themselves uh, in this in this environment, and we're very very grateful to them because mm. we couldn't have the books without them. I think that came through in both the books. That, uh, you're um, you are grateful and uh, you appreciated what they did. We do. And it was a labor of love writing these books, and the nurses are our heroes. Mm. That's very good. Thanks for coming in today to uh, talk with me, Dr. Dorian. Thank you. Now, Barbara Viegas will give you the rundown of upcoming events on campus. Hey, um, so starting this week, um, on the 14th, there's the Black Student Union is doing a Hot Topics Forum. You can come to their meeting with a hot topic, and it's at the Honors House at 8.30 p.m. Who's doing that? The Black Student Union. Hmm. Um, also, on um, Wednesday the 15th, there's a Thanksgiving dinner on the West Side Marketplace um, by Sodexo, so that'll be fun. And a fun fact, actually, um, they just got um, Cocoa Puffs in the Midtown Student Center uh, restaurant because, um, I guess, students were complaining that they wanted Cocoa Puffs, so they just posted on Instagram, you asked, we listened, there are now Cocoa Puffs, so that's great. Yeah, that uh, is great. <laughs> You're not going to eat them for dinner, though, right? Well, you might. <laughs> College <laughs> students will surprise you. <laughs> oh, man, along with your cold pizza. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, also on uh, Wednesday the 15th, from 9 to 12, 9 p.m. to 12 a.m., there's Midnight Madness that was rescheduled uh, from the Fall Bash to this um, upcoming upcoming Wednesday. There's free food and t-shirts and contest raffles, and it's supposed to be really fun. It's um, hosted by SGA and IRHA. Um, oh, what kind of contests with apples? Um, well, like basketball, like like three, like you know, it's like shoot from a certain point or something, and then like you win things, and then you shooting with apples. 
No, no, basketballs. Oh, okay. Did Didn't you say something about apples there? No, raffles. Oh, raffles. <laughs> Contest raffles. Yeah. That's our producer's fault. My earphones aren't working, I guess. Uh, <laughs> no, so it should be really fun. Um, I know that the men's and women's basketball team is working really, really hard. And they're doing really great so far, from what like we know at mm-hmm. SGA. Um, November 18th, there's the Powder Puff game. It's a flag football tournament. It starts at noon, and it's on the West Side Recreation Field. Um, you can register by the 17th. It's a Friday. And you can, if, if you have any questions, you can email frackerj at wcsu.edu. And anybody can do that, any student, right? Yeah, um, from what I, yeah, I'm pretty sure, yes. You can register. And it should be really cool. Um, you know, my high school used to do it mm-hmm. um, right before I came, like right before I became a freshman, they used to do it and then they stopped it because people would get hurt. Oh. <laughs> so I never got a chance, so maybe I'll sign up. Because it seems really cool. Yeah, and now you're older, you're not going to do stupid things to get hurt, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know that the cheerleading team, at least when I was on it, we weren't allowed to do stuff like this because, you know, girls would get hurt mm-hmm. and then just ruin the season. Right. But hopefully no one gets hurt, so you should definitely go to the event. <laughs> <laughs> you're really pumping it up. Right? Everybody will show up. Powder puff um, flag football tournament. Um, also, the Black Student Union is also doing chocolate lounge auditions. Um which I, I'm not completely sure what the chocolate lounge is. I know it's like a tradition of theirs, though. Um, so they, I'm pretty sure it's just like performances and that kind of thing. Um, but on their second um, audition, their first one already passed on the 13th, but on the 15th on Westside Campus Center, uh, room 212 from 6 to 8.30, you can audition to be part of the chocolate lounge. Hmm. Maybe we should have them on here. We can interview them about what it is. Yeah, that would be cool. Um, I know it's a long-standing tradition, though, so it seems to have, like, a lot of success. Good. Um, Also, the debate team um, on the 15th is having a bake sale from 12.45 to 3 p.m. in the Midtown Student Center lobby. And then at 5 p.m., they're having their second event of the semester, which is having a debate in Student Center room 216. And the the debate will be judged by alumni Max Hamoy. Hmm. So it's free, and you can just go watch and see the debate team do their thing and, um, you know, debate. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, there's a Rec After Dark free skate um, at the Danbury Ice Arena in December, December 1st. It's a little bit farther ahead, um, but it's from 10.30 p.m. until 12 a.m. Wow. And then there's, there's going to be shuttle stopping like, every 30 minutes all night. Um, until 12 a.m. probably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's free to all WCSU students and guests, and uh, there's free food and skates available. It's really cool. And then the last thing I have is Evita. The Department of Theater um, Arts will present Evita. Um, they're doing a lot of different showings, but I know that the ones that there are, like the ones that are left, um, are Friday the 17th at 8 p.m., Saturday the 18th um, at 2 p.m. and 8 p.m., and then um, I think the last one is on Sunday the 19th at 1 p.m. And these are all in the VPAC Main Stage Theater. That's excellent. Everybody should go to that, too. Yeah. Midnight Madness. I've heard Vita. really good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. So you're going to give us a, uh, a roundup of uh, Tiesto, right? How did that go? Yeah, well, Tiesto and all of Fall Bash was just incredible. Mm. Um, everything was just so successful and very fun. Um, there were so many people at Tiesto. It was it was crazy. Um, yeah, it was just really great. The, the funny thing, fun fact, um, 
the SGA executive board got to meet Tiesto. Mm. And you're on the executive board. I am on the executive board, but my phone died <laughs> at the concert. So the entire e-board got to meet them and I didn't see anyone and I didn't have my phone. So I didn't know any information to go meet him. So I didn't get to meet oh him. Oh my gosh. But I got to see him in concert. So, you know, no hard feelings. I've gotten over it. It's totally fine. <laughs> meet Tiesto some other time. <laughs> wow. But very sad moment in my life. Yeah. Finding out, like, when I got home and, like, charged my phone and saw the pictures of them with Tiesto, I was like, what? Like, are you kidding? They got to go backstage, all these things, and my phone was dead, so. So nobody tapped you on the shoulder? They just thought you were looking at your phone and they didn't uh, round you up when you weren't there? Yeah, I mean, they sent me a lot of messages when I when I looked at my phone later, but I don't know. It was just so many people. I didn't see a lot of the e-board um, there. So, I mean, obviously, they were all there, but mm-hmm. I didn't personally because there was just so many people, and I was just, like, in the middle of a crowd, so. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him, but the other people did, and apparently he's a nice guy. So huh. maybe another life, <laughs> another <Yeah>. concert. <laughs> right. Um, but all of the other Fall Bash events were absolutely incredible. Um, SGA Day went incredible too. Really great. Um, and then uh, Fall Bash was really cool too. We had the um, two food trucks. There was like um, I don't know the name of. There was a. Churro food truck, and then there was like a hot dog, hamburger food, hmm. food truck kind of thing, and they were both just really great and really delicious. So a lot of people went to them. Yeah, and there's a lot of inflatables. We gave out all the fall bash shirts, um, so it was just really fun week. Hmm. And I'm sad to see that it's over, but um, West Fest is coming up, you know, yeah, next semester. Right. So that'll be a fun week as well, and hopefully fall bash will become a tradition um, every year because it was just really fun this year and. You know. And a lot of people getting it, sounds like getting into it and uh, enjoying their time at WestCon and uh, feeling good about being good students here, Yeah, right? exactly. We want to build um, that sense of like unity within the students and everything. Yeah. And um, next year, like the goal for Fall Bash is kind of to get more clubs involved because this year it was mostly like the big organizations like SGA, PAC, IRHA, um, REC, that kind of thing. But we want like some clubs to like participate as well and Greek Life, obviously, as well. But um, we wanted like some smaller clubs to like get get involved and like put on their own events and stuff because we want like lots of things happening that week. So it's yeah. just like a huge week um, before West Fest and stuff, so we can have it in both semesters and have fun. That'd be exciting. Yeah, hopefully it happens. How are you gonna so. get that word out? Um, well, I mean, the success of Fall Bash this year is just outstanding and really good because then students will talk about it and they'll get excited next year about they're like, oh my god, Fall Bash again! Like, mm-hmm. who are we having this year? Hopefully, um, I, ha- I don't have the exact numbers for ticket sales and everything, um, but I'm pretty sure they were really good mm-hmm. um, with like the last minute, last minute flow of students and everything. So hopefully, it was enough to like you know allow Western to be like a concert <laughs> university mm-hmm. that brings in big artists, um, because that would be like the goal for Fall Bash to have right. like a concert every Fall Bash. That's cool. Um, so hopefully that works, and I think that the students really have the power here if they. Um, had fun this year and they want it to happen again, they should definitely just, you know, talk to the student government or try to um, volunteer or give ideas or anything about what they want to see because we're very open. It's a very fresh event and week of events. So um, we're open to, you know, suggestions and everything that whatever students want, we'll try to, you know, Mm -hmm. give. Do you think people uh, attended because they heard about it on the podcast here? Um, Yeah, maybe. Um, But I think the I think one thing that I wanted to say uh, really was like thank you um, to the Student Government Association and to my committee 
um, and the Fall Bash Committee. So there's a whole Fall Bash Committee and then also my Student Relations Committee just worked so hard promoting Tiesto and making SGA Day happen. And like some of our senators worked really hard on Fall Bash too because they were sitting on the committee. But I just want to say a huge thanks to all of them. Thanks to John Murphy, our advisors, and just everyone that participated in making Fall Bash happen. Greek Life, IRHA, PAC, everybody. Um, because without everyone's support and all the students' support, like we couldn't have done anything. Mm. Um, and it, especially with a lot of the planning being the bulk of midterm week, it was definitely difficult. But everyone came together and just made this amazing week. So it's just very proud of everybody and just thank you to everyone that participated because it was really great yeah and Couldn't if it was a huge proud. failure it would have been all on you right because <laughs> yeah it'd be really easy like impeach barbara <laughs> fall bash failed no <laughs> so um yeah <laughs> it's on everyone <laughs> everyone did a great job um good yeah so i had a question do your colleagues in the student government association listen to this podcast yeah actually um the vpia talks to me like all the time um about how he's like oh i laughed so hard at the last podcast when like we were talking about tiesto and like meeting him that kind of thing um and uh, the, all the student government i've told them like i gave them a link and everything i told them to publicize it um they're still making a flyer and stuff like that there's like um i sent it out to one committee member and stuff she's just finishing up and then we're gonna Cool. publicize everything but a lot of the senators do listen and i listen obviously after <laughs> i hear myself talk <laughs> do they what do they say about me they say that you have a really great um voice obviously like like a radio voice mm-hmm. and, the, and i told them i was like there's the comparison to like your voice and mine like they, whenever they hear the intro it's like hello paul, <laughs> Sim- paul Simons. and then it's like hi i'm barbara <laughs> so it's like there's a big difference definitely don't have a radio voice but <laughs> so it's kind of hard a little intimidating here paul <laughs> oh we try to make it easy for you right yeah do they ever mention chris cook and his podcast Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> all right. I think we wrapped it all up. Sounds good. And we'll uh, be back next week for um, another look at what's coming ahead. Right, Barbara? Yeah, definitely. Good. Thanks. Thank you. I want to thank our producers, Scott Fulpe and Pete Puccio, who make all the WestCon podcasts possible. In addition to WCSU 411, there is the Compassionate Achiever, Literacy Ladies, and the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching. As I understand it, and I have done some research on this, no other university on earth offers such podcast value. So if you like what you've heard, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. You can leave a comment there. Or you can comment on Twitter at WCSU411. Barbara is waiting to hear from you.